Maine, who's familiar for his dry wit during decades of hosting SportsCenter and doing features around the world, had a pretty lame excuse for why he was considered the worst contestant in the history of Dancing with the Stars. We talked about it, and also about some of the unusual sports he's covered, like when he went to Switzerland to cover Hornison, which is translated as farmer's golf with a cheese board. (laughs) You be the judge. Kenny has ideas on everything from how to improve golf, something about yelling during the backswing, to how gambling might impact the national anthem. He's good company, and he also has a charity to help wounded veterans, an idea that came from his own chronic pain. I hope you enjoy it. This week, we have the man, Kenny Maine, the athlete, the storyteller, the philanthropic sportscaster. Welcome to In Conversation, something you've pretty much mastered. Thank you. That's a nice backdrop. I'm in my backyard. Some people think it's a uh, like a green screen or something, but this is my favorite place to do interviews is be outdoors. You hear dogs barking. I feel good out here. But I have determined that that ratty gray t-shirt, I know people on the radio can't see it, but you can imagine it. It's a beautiful backdrop, the Pacific Northwest, and he wears the same ratty gray t-shirt every interview. You're known, you know, for your dry humor. And I always wonder, do you think of yourself as like a descendant of Bob Newhart or Steve Wright? Like, who were your guys? Johnny Carson. My dad, my dad's friend, Al Drake, my best friend, Mark Sansever, my sister's boyfriends, um, you know, other funny, you're always shaped by your environment. Right. And I thought I grew up, it's funny, like as the older you get, I just had my birthday. You're like, dang, I wish I were 10 years younger or 20 years. You know, you think of all the things you wish you could relive or, you know, have more time. And then at the same time, I'm like, wait a minute, I wouldn't trade what I grew up with for anything. Like what did shape me? I, Stevie Wonder talking book and inner visions came out when I was 12 and 13, you know, like I got the blueprint for the best music ever when I was just barely a teenager. Right. And the great friends I had around me and my family. And like I said, Johnny Carson, definitely a little bit of uh, the whole Carol Burnett show, maybe some of that influence. You don't think, see, I see Remember Stephen. <laughs> well, Stephen Wright, I think you have to watch more of because oh, I love Stephen Wright. Love Stephen Wright. Oh, I mean, How about where fan. he said, How about where he said, um, uh, I found out I needed contact lenses just for reading. So I got the flip ups. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's totally your kind of guy. I have a map of the United States at home. It's life size. I live at E6. I think I'm in the neighborhood. (laughs) No, he was genius. Um, There's all sorts of influence, you know, heck, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, like all these were comics growing up. And the funny thing is, I just said this to somebody else. They had a thing on Twitter, describe what you do without saying what you do. You know, one of those little things. And I didn't do it, but I would have said, I essentially make a living for the same reasons that used to have me in the hall in fifth grade most of the year, right? Like, what's the most absurd thing I can say right now? And yeah, I mean, I think that was that was what I did. And I probably succeeded in some ways because of that. And I probably failed in some ways because of that, right? Like in football. I probably could have been more serious. Not that I was out there screwing around. I was very diligent. I worked hard, but I was just telling Gretchen last night, I wish I knew then what I know now, that old thing, you know? That's what I said about, oh, there's my bobsled helmet. I was the first woman ever to go down the Olympic bobsled and uh, CBS put it on. It was when Herschel was on the team 
And uh, Herschel said, oh, why don't you come down with the team? I thought, oh, what a way to go. It, it was insane. You know, it's like um, a, a tin. It is insane. It's 100 miles an hour. They got a free trip, the Olympic team, down the track. And you rattled, right? It's a tin can going 100 miles an hour over ice. And at the end, CBS actually put it on the air. And at the end, they said, what was it like? And I said, it was like the Bob Seger song. I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. It was <laughs> like, I, I was bruised for two weeks. My my legs look like, like bad fruit. Yeah, although mine, I don't know if you said it how you meant to, or if I don't know that song well enough. I meant, I wish I knew then what I do know now. Like, I would have been smarter. I would have done things different in a whole bunch of ways. You know, the kid who played ahead of me, who's still a good friend of mine, Sam King, my senior year, he led the nation in passing yards. He was smarter than I was. I think I had a better arm, but he was smarter. He just was. He was more diligent. He was more professional. He, you know, he knew to hand the ball to four two running backs where I'm, you know, trying to hit home runs, you know. Well, didn't you go to some like reservation junior college first? What was the name of that junior college? Wenatchee Valley. It's where you get your apples. If you enjoy red, delicious apples, they're from Wenatchee, yeah. Washington or Yakima. Um, so my story was I was like in ninth grade. We we did junior high, then high school, right? We did seven, eight, nine, then 10, 11, 12. And ninth grade, I played fifth quarter mostly, which that's the game after the game is for the Isn't players. Isn't that detention? It was for the, yeah, it was detention football. That's a great way to say it. Now, it was embarrassing because you think you're better than they think you are. And you know the game means absolutely nothing. It's eight minutes of garbage of players. I think they set the ball on the 10 or something, you know. But I knew I was better than that. But I'm 5'8", 135 pounds. And I broke my leg middle of that or late that year, right when I started playing more. So now I'm going to turn out for high school football, having barely played in junior high, right? Because I was fifth quarter guy. But but I quickly grew like a year later. I was 6'2 and filled out and got stronger and ended up playing Division One A football. Not that I played that much, but, you know, got to go to school for free at UNLV. But at a high school, I was like third team. I wasn't like a superstar, but I was, you know, noticed as good, not horrible, right? I walked on at Washington. Then I walked off and I went to the junior <laughs> college. You thought you were Warren Moon? <laughs> No, Warren Moon was the senior. I was the freshman. Oh, God. Well, good good walk-off. First time I – well, I didn't think I was going to try to beat out him, but I thought I was better than the freshman they had. Um, but I just didn't want to stand around and do nothing and not improve and not play. And junior college gave me a chance to grow and develop, and I, I love that I did it. And and I don't I wouldn't trade that for anything. And then I went to uh, Las Vegas after that. Yeah, was football uh, – did you think – why not me? I'm going to take a shot to get to the pros or it was just because you loved it. And UNLV, good program, division one. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, I didn't play like my historical UNLV stats. I, if I threw a hundred passes that I don't even know if I threw that many, I, I was second string, basically my, I registered that I was second string, broke my leg in the middle of my junior year at Oregon. And then the next year I played again. And my coach, Tony Knapp, told the Seahawks, hey, if you like Sam, he was the kid ahead of me, um, you'll like the other guy who didn't play much, but he can throw. And so I went up and I threw for Jerry Rome, who was the quarterback's coach. Guess who's in the building the day I go up to throw at the old Kirkland. This You probably remember it. It's the one that was on the lake before the one that's now on the lake. It was yeah, downtown definitely. Kirkland. Then they moved up to the church property after that. But the old one was literally on Lake Washington in, in Kirkland. And... 
Steve Largent happens to be in there lifting weights or something, they're like, hey, Steve, come outside. And that's a bag job. I get to throw to Steve Largent for my tryout. Both very nervous, like, oh, shoot, it's Steve Largent. But also he's going to catch everything, which he did. And so I ended up signing that day. I went upstairs, signed a con. I didn't even look at it. I just, where do I sign? I think I was 30,000, 35 and 40 or 45, no bonus. Dave Craig's pissed because I actually got more than he got. He was a year ahead of me. So Jim Zorn was the quarterback. Dave Craig was second. Sam Atkins was third. And then there was a bunch of us rookies. But I failed the physical the first day of training camp because, like I said, I'd broken my ankle really bad my junior year of college. And they weren't willing to take a risk. Here's a guy that, you know, marginal college player, if that. Why are we going to risk another injury on some guy that's probably going to get cut anyway? So how come you don't? go around with that, whatever the piece of paper is. John Madden told me once that he got a recruiting letter from Notre Dame in high school. So he had it hanging out of his pocket for like two, two years. So I can't believe you don't have that framed in the background. Um, the fact that I was with them at all. I think I have the contract somewhere I have, you know, what I have framed is the, the re release. <laughs> That's so you, my release paper, just to remind me. And the funniest part is they take this is back when the Seahawks used to practice over in Cheney, Washington, which for those who don't know, it's way on the eastern side of the state by Spokane. Right. And I, I failed a physical. I'm in tears. I can't believe what's just happened. I didn't know that I was being tested about my ankle. I thought I was just, you know, like running a 40 or bench press. I thought it was another thing. You know, instead, I failed the little Cybex test they put me on and they cut me and I'm walking out. Dave Craig always jokes that he said, Hey, as long as you're leaving, go bring me back a six pack. That was going to be his, like, thanks, Dave. <laughs> I mean, I was mortified. I, I didn't think I was going to be Joe Montana, but I thought I was good enough to maybe make a team or at least get cut late enough to go to Canada or the USFL, or, you know, there was some other options at the time. Um, so I go to the Cheney airport, some kid drives me a high school kid or a college kid, and they give me $10 meal money. In an out burger. Yeah, it was a five, four ones, and four quarters. That's how much money <laughs> I made in the national. Call football. someone who cares. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, um, it was a catastrophic injury, which has led you to great things when you hurt your ankle. But go through that story. Well, it was called a fracture dislocation. They didn't think I was going to play the next year. And they said, we're going to honor your scholarship. You know, you're going to finish up your school, get your degree, which was broadcasting, but more serious. I want it to be. Like today, my hope would have been to be doing documentaries for Frontline, PBS, like serious stuff, right? It, I just kind of fell into sports as it turned out. But, um, it, you know, each year it got worse. Each decade it got worse. And there was a point about 10 years ago where I literally thought about getting amputated because I was in such pain getting out of bed. In About the time I was doing a lot of ESPN uh, stories for football, so I was constantly on an airplane every week, flying two and three cities and all over the place. And every, you know how it is on airplanes, especially as you get older, like, you know, you swell up in your joints. And so I went to three doctors. I'd already had about 10 surgeries, you know, bone spurs, metal in, metal out, fusion of my toe, all these things, right? And I went to the fusion guy. I went to the ankle replacement guy. And I went to the amputation guy all in one week. I just, I wanted to hear from everybody what they thought. And it was truly the amputation people at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle that kind of changed my life because they were like, you're too young to consider that. We know you're in pain. Let's get you a better therapist. Let's find you a brace, right? They kind of steered me the right way. 
So I found this one brace that was pretty good, but it wasn't like this thing I have now, which I was going to, I'm going to show you, but now I know that nobody can see it. So it looks like a fake leg, right? It does. And my leg goes inside the apparatus. You can go to runfreely.org, R-U-N-F-R-E-E-L-Y, runfreely.org, and see the whole thing. So it tells my story, which I just sort of recap. So were you in pain for decades? I mean, yeah, on and off sometimes. And I, I don't know if I had a true addiction, if you call it that, but I definitely was using painkillers and probably unnecessarily at times where, oh, I'll take one in case it hurts, you know? And I've, I haven't used them in over, is it two years, year and a half, whatever it's been, I not one. Like I just was able to kind of deal with the day-to-day and I use this device. They don't like to call it a brace. It's insulting. It's a device. Um, and they make them in Gig Harbor, Washington. It's called an ExoSim. And they fit it just for you, right? And we have been able, well, going backwards, I put the thing on. And on the first day, I ran on the treadmill with no pain, like 15 miles an hour. And I started crying for like two hours. I couldn't control myself because I'm trying to call Gretchen and tell her this miracle that just happened. And I can barely get the words out. And I think it was that call or maybe the next call. We were like, let's do something good with this. So we started a foundation, Run Freely. And we had a kickoff event in Seattle, I think about the next August, because I got in in late 17 and this happened in 18. We had Jamal Crawford, Gary Payton, Steve Largent, Jerry Rice, and Lenny Wilkins. That's a good crew. Do you know that Lenny Wilkins... Only triple Hall of Fame member. Well, Bill Russell's going in, uh, or by the time this airs, Bill Russell is in the Hall of Fame as a coach. There are only five players and coaches who went in. And I can't imagine Lenny Wilkins has anything Bill Russell. Well, Lenny Wilkins has Olympics also. He's, he's so in does for, Bill Russell, my then friend. And I guess they'd be 3-3 three, three at that point. I guess they would be. <laughs> so we've been bragging up Lenny pretty hard. He was the coach of the 1979 Seattle Sonics Championship. Yes, team. he was. But Bill Russell from my native Boston was the greatest champion in the history of American sports. Back-to-back college, Olympic, and 11 titles. Thank you. No knocking Bill Russell. He lives in Seattle. In fact, he was out at the Jamal Crawford uh, Pro-Am in Seattle a couple weeks ago. Um, So anyway, all these guys are going to show up. And I'm thinking we need like a 20,000 seat building. We're going to, the whole town's going to come out for this in my head, right? I find it's hard throwing a brand new charitable event. Like it was something. So we ended up at a high school and... I don't know, a couple hundred people, maybe. And I probably knew 150 of them. And it was what it was, but it, it got out of the gate. And since that day, that's August of 2018, I have to look it up. But I, we're close to one veteran a month. Like, I don't know precisely the number, but it, it comes in groups. Like, we'll do like three, and then we don't do any for four months, and then we do five. And, you know, so the money kind of yo yo's. Jamal Crawford gave $1,000 for each of my years at ESPN. So Jamal bought, he bought three by himself. Oh, and he can't do enough for veterans. So thank you. But I want to ask you, uh, are you blaming your ankle for that? I say the word carefully performance on dancing with the stars. Somewhat I'm blaming uh, the judges. They did not understand what I was trying to convey. You almost kicked your partner at one point. Was that intentional? My performance had so many nuances layers to it that 
I mean, hundreds of years from now, they'll look back at that dance and realize it's greatness. No, no. One judge called it demented. I know. That was Bruno. <laughs> oh, blame the Italian. You're blaming the Italian judge. I sucked. I agree. However, I wasn't the worst. Master P will admit he was worse than I was. He didn't even care. He checked out. He's he's a good guy. We had fun being around each other. But he had a big following, and I had nobody. They're like, who the hell's this guy? So nobody voted for me from the public. Oh, my God. Are you playing the victim? A little bit. No, you were at one point, didn't you wave off one of the cha-cha I did, moves? I, and oh, I, knew, I knew I was going to do that because I couldn't get to the other spot. So Andrea Hale's her name. I blame her. She, I said, Andrea, why don't we do a super simple thing? Like the most simple dance you could ever imagine. She's like, no, 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 no. We're going to do a very complex thing. And they're going to reward you for your ambition. Oh, the old technical difficulty? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it wasn't very good. But from that point, Jerry Rice and I and Len Goodman, the judge, we did this little fake show called Dance Center for about, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. Well, I can remember the very first Dancing with the Stars was um, I was privileged to go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And in my the class was it was a great class. It was Troy Aikman, Harry Carson, Warren Moon, Reggie White. And John Madden and um, Emmett was there, of course, for Troy. And Emmett said, I'm going on this show called Dancing with the Stars. I said, what? Because remember Emmett, Emmett was, remember he was quiet at first. He wasn't. Oh, he got into it. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to win it. I said, Emmett, you didn't even do interviews without Michael Irvin for the first 10 years. You're not going to win Dancing with the Stars. And he took home the, what is it that you had no chance at? What's the Um, trophy? something ball. I don't think that was the first year they did. It was a summer replacement show that they had to do a do over because somebody challenged and they did like a bonus <laughs> show. And then, so my year with Jerry Rice was sort of the first fall season one and, and it's gone on forever. Um, but yeah, I've put that behind me. I've, I've moved on to more improvisational dance. I see. <laughs> Maybe you could do that Hakka dance that all these Samoan. Oh, I'd love that. Do. If I have that. Absolutely. I love when they do that. I tried to learn that. Tell me, we've both been fortunate to go all over the world for our jobs, but tell me, what what are some of your blue ribbon memories? I'd say the one I would brag about, because I'm my own agent, if I were like, you know, putting out notes about my client, which is me, when Stevie Wonder's band members knew who I was. (laughs) Because they saw you? Yeah, that was enough for me. Um, And I'd say number one of all the things I got to do Again, with Stevie Wonder, do you remember Tim Scanlon? Of course. So Tim was in charge of baseball. Great guy. He's now an agent. Um, And there was going to be a concert in Philadelphia. And the All-Star game that year was going to be in Detroit. Stevie Wonder's from Detroit. I was like, let me go to this concert and try to get him to do a line. And we'll use it when we go to the All-Star baseball game in two weeks. Because I played in that celebrity softball thing. And he says, well, do you have anything set up? And I'm like, no. Yeah, press pass, no. You have a camera, no. I got nothing. It's it's 5 o'clock on a Saturday. I'm telling you I want to fly later tonight. It might have been a day before. I might be exaggerating. But he greenlights this thing with no plan. Just, I think you'll pull it off. Good luck. I'm like, okay, Tim Scanlon, I love you. So I, I go to Philadelphia. I get a, a flimsy little credential. It's a it's a, a benefit concert called Live Eight, not Live Aid, but Live Eight, like the G Eight Nations, right? They had a good, a really cool mission. Actually, they were trying to help Africa sing 
we want these richer nations to help African nations relieve some debt and, you know, do some economic help for them. And so, so there was like a worldwide concert, Philadelphia, and I think London and somewhere else. Stevie Wonder is going to be the, the final act. And I get there. And as the day progresses, I, I end up getting kind of close to his trailer. And I'm thinking I'm going to try to get somebody's attention. And they're waving people in to meet him. Like Will Smith goes in there. And then Natalie Portman goes in there. All these famous people are there, right? Then the guy's looking right at me. And there's no, how they know who I am? Like, there's no way they know. Why would they call me in? But I'm like, he's still waving. He's still smiling. So I take a couple steps forward. Just then Don Cheadle blows by me and he's the one they were waiting. <laughs> I, I'm with, I'm with stupid. Yeah. I don't give up because I, I think perseverance is my best trait. And I run into a teamster who's like one of the guys, you know, setting up the, the, the gates and whatnot. He recognized me from sports center. What are you doing here? I tell him my story. He has an extra pass. Now I got a lanyard. Now I'm backstage. Now I'm in with the cool people. And I just keep on moving up the field. Eventually I get to Stevie's guy. I tell him my story. He said, you stand right here when the show's over in like nine hours, you get to pitch him. If he says yes, yes. If he says no, no, but it's up to you to sell him. Right. So I get there at that point and tell Stevie the bit. He likes it. He does it. His line was, I can't be at the baseball all-star game. I have a high ankle sprain. <laughs> That's great. It was all uh worth it. I got some others. That was just a long ass story to get you to the Stevie Wonder moment because that's my number. That's my number one. I'd say being a Dale Earnhardt's 500 win has got to be right up there. Yeah. No, I meant some of the ones that that people might be unfamiliar with, like the Hornison. What was that stupid sport? You hit a golf ball with a wire, a 25 foot wire. We traveled around the world for three years. We went to uh, Switzerland is what you're referring to called Hornusen. And it's, it's a triangular metal, um, gosh, I didn't know how to describe it. Just like a piece of metal that's triangular and they hit it off a tee with what's kind of like a golf club, but it has a big bend and whip to it. And so it's twice as long as a regular golf club. They hit the thing forever. Now it gets weird after this. There are people in the outfield, the farm, uh, holding these giant wooden boards. They look like giant cheese boards. And they're supposed to knock the metal hornet, it's called, down. And if they don't do it, they get sort of a demerit. So half the game is how far do you hit it? And half the game is do you knock down the other guy's hits? Like, do they have box seats? Um, it was a crowd of crazy people on a giant field, like the biggest farm field you could imagine. <laughs> There's all sorts of teams and it's a big thing. And so I'm not much of a drinker. I I, you know, have wine with Gretchen occasionally or Mezcal if we go to Mexico, but you know, weekly I'm not a drinker, right? But that day to honor the 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 Hornusen people, they said you have to do the celebratory toast as it concluded. He pulls out, I don't know what the hell it was. It just looked like water, right? It was homemade something. And you took one sip and you could barely stand anymore. You just it went, you felt it just course through your whole body. Now I still have to do interviews. <laughs> and yeah, it was something. Um, we also did the Palio, which is the I horse race. I love that. Yeah, that's the horse race in Siena, Italy. And it's gone on for hundreds of years. All the town, all the districts in the town bring a horse out. Not all of them, 10 of the 17, I should say. And they do it twice a summer. It's just, you got to see it to believe it. It's, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Three laps, no rules. How about where they keep running, even if the guy falls off? Oh, 
But that uh, counts. You don't need the jockey. Jockeys can hit the other jockeys. Jockeys might be being paid off by another district. They, ah. they threw that one out there. Uh, but but at the same time, it if you look at our story, you could look up my name and Palio, P-A-L-I-O, and it's on the internet. Um, we did like a 15-minute full-blown, you know, we stayed there for two weeks, like really got into it. And it was so fun doing those stories. We're, you know, traveling the world and meeting people and doing crazy stuff. Um, we did Muay Thai in Thailand. I was, I felt like I was in a Scorsese movie. Like it was, it was a scene. It was wild in there. I did sumo wrestling once in Japan and I called it girth of a nation. <laughs> sumo wrestling <laughs> is pretty nuts. It's pretty fun. Nuts. I've never seen it in person. Only, only uh, Mary Carilla did a really cool piece on it um, for Peacock because I did that for the Olympics. Yeah. Wait, stop there. In the Olympics, now um, Mary's, well, one of, both our great friend, and I, we watched a lot of Mary, especially when she knew what fish were in the ocean water swim, what kind of chum was in there. But um, basically, you were the only person I saw on Peacock. You must have worked six hours a day. Yeah. You know what? I, I just was having this conversation, and I always like to qualify the remark on that because there's a bunch of people without jobs or jobs they don't like, or, you know what I'm saying? Like, so for us to go, oh, we had to work four hour show, you know, it just sounds so wrong. But if you're in TV or radio, you know, any, anything, once you get past an hour or two, you know, it's, it takes, it takes a lot of energy. It takes like, you have to get your uh, adrenaline up and down and, and it's, it's something you have to kind of like find, like, what mood do I have to be in to do well at this thing I'm about to do live for four and a half hours? So they became closer to six hours, like you said, because there was a little bit of pre-production or rehearsal or whatever. Um, but it was great fun. Carrie Champion was with me. You should have seen her just as much. So if you could win any Olympic sport, what would you want? Well, it's funny you bring that up because I think there was a poll that something like 45% of American males claim they could make an Olympic sport. I'm like, really? I think 98% of you couldn't catch a 12-yard curl from me, and I'm 60-odd years old. But let me think. I think the thing I'd be best at, I couldn't compete at their level, obviously, um, would be team handball, or they just call it handball, because that's the only thing I can still do is throw things. So you picked a sport that we didn't even qualify in. Well, you asked, what could I do personally? No, my question was, what medal would you want to hang in your trophy case? Wouldn't I want to win the hundred meter? I mean, I mean, are, are we just making up stuff that yes. we can't do and pretending? Anytime I shoot like an eighty-five in golf, I tell my friends I'm shaving twenty strokes and I'm joining the professional tour, and I mean it. That's the sad part. Is uh, swing shaving a um, is is that a score shaving? Is that another gambling event? They could have it in golf. You could. Oh, I love that. I my proposal in golf was that players get to yell during the other person's backswing once per nine holes. So the game's on the line, hole 17, it's a tie match, and the guy's just about to hit a par four tee shot and you get to yell in his backswing. Do you think you're in a time warp since Brooksy just got outlawed? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny that the way golf has gone, the the personalities have come such to the forefront where we we probably in the past didn't know who liked who or who didn't like who. And now because of social media and how everything's reported, right? It's like a little drama every week. What do you think, um, just referring to gambling, you know, we come from the NFL when they 
suspended Paul Horning and Alex Karras, absolutely never going to play in Las Vegas. Now I think the NFL has six partners since six gambling partners. Where do you think it's going? There's a chance that money has <laughs> invaded that question. I remember doing sports centers where you would be shamed, if not, you know, suspended if you even alleged gambling might or might. But the funny part about it was it was such a double standard. We were, we being ESPN, we were running and CBS does the same, the big websites, you know, for fantasy football, right? Well, that technically might be the biggest gambling website in the world by itself, right? Because everybody's playing this game, betting with each other. I think it's harmless. Like, obviously, anything to excess is wrong. You don't want to drink too much or gamble too much or do anything too much. But everybody loves action on football, in particular in America. It's just the way it is. Um, and I think there just came a time when the people in charge of the money were like, we just got to give in. There's money to be made in this sector. Like, let's, we're going to drop that whole thing. I mean, don't you remember, was it five years ago, Tony Romo wasn't allowed to show up at a fantasy draft or something like that in Vegas. Right. And it was very harmless. He was just probably getting a check and showing up and waving and signing autographs. It wasn't like he was telling everybody to gamble on every game. I get why they are nervous about human nature, right? Because there have been instances where people have thrown games or referees. It happened in the NBA, right? Um, sure. But most of these athletes, the 99.999% are committed to winning, right? They're not, uh, you know, anybody's susceptible to anything. It happens in business. There's corrupt business people, corrupt politicians. Why wouldn't there be potentially corrupt athletes? That could happen. But I think on the whole, these games are played fairly, the refs are fair, and the best team usually wins, or the one that should have won the thing. How do you think it might uh, change our business that, you know, right now, the seven-second delay, if you could see something, you know, it could be a bet on a first down, people can bet on anything. And so if you heard it, you know, maybe on the radio as it happens, but now there's a seven-second delay and you get down fast, I, I wonder also how it's going to change just announcing in general. I don't want to be part of your conspiracy. Um, so I'm distancing. That was your idea. If anybody's listening to her. Not my idea. Out. I think they have to be careful about it. Yes. That. Yeah. You're just putting out cautionary notes. Like, how about this one? You know how they do all the weird prop bets on Super Bowls? Like they bring out everything. What about somebody who's there that knows that the anthem singer sings the anthem in a minute 30 or a minute 40 or whatever the over under is going to be? Because that I think that bet has been out there. Before. That is, that is. And they only allow when you're the network that does the Super Bowl, only a few people get to go to the rehearsal. You could be outside the stadium and put a clock on that. So, you know, I don't want to be part of your conspiracy, but okay. I, we're bringing up cautionary. <laughs> these are warnings for those. who. No, I, the one thing about Vegas is funny because I you know went to school there. The people who want the fairest game possible are those who are taking bets. They want, they want the cleanest game. They're, it's the opposite of what the notion is that Vegas will somehow corrupt it. It's the opposite, I think. And it's going to happen. You know, there, there'll be somebody trying to pull something. Do you remember that, that story about, man, it's been a long time now. I want to say 15 years ago or more. And it was a breeder's cup, I believe. And somebody found a way to mess with the system at some little OTB and was it like North Dakota right. or somewhere? And they found a way to pass post, basically like, like know the result and quickly punch tickets or punch so many that they could cover themselves. I forget 
the mechanism they use. They ought to make a movie out of that and, you know, call it the sting. There you go. I I grew up with that. That was that a lot of people don't even know that movie. Exactly that was so what you're well told. About. Well, if you want to go way back, I actually did that job very briefly in Las Vegas. So when I went to college, we had meeting, you know, school was over at one o'clock or whatever. Meetings were at two thirty. There was like this 90 minute window. Ray Krause running back from Oakland, California. He had a cool car. We'd jump in his car. We'd go bet two races, turn around, get back on time for a football meeting at 2.30. And in the old days, this is my days, uh, late 70s, early 80s, if you went to the sports books, now they're all over. Every place has one. But in the old days, there weren't that many of them. Some of the bigger casinos took action on games, but they weren't showing horse races because there weren't any races to be shown because they weren't on video. There were like one or two tracks that had a video feed and the rest people just like the movie she refers to this thing. You'd sit in this, in this room and they'd, they'd swing across this big board, giant board, you know, 10 feet wide. And it would have the names of the horses in the race that's about to happen. And you'd listen to somebody describe the race or, uh, you know, like a recreation of the race. So I would listen to these and I'd bet on golden gate or Santa Anita, whoever. And I contacted the guys who ran that company. Like I can do that. I know how to call a horse race. I've done it all my life. I've done it since I was nine years old on bicycles and cars, you know, you name it. I was always calling a horse race and I somehow convinced them to give me a try. And so for a couple months, I was one of the guys and they're off craft monster broke alert. You know, I'd fake the race. Right. And you would get a, you would get a call from some guy at the track who worked, you know, with the book or with the disseminator, I should say. And he'd give you just a, a cliff notes. Like he'd say, one, five, eight, seven, one by a half, five by two, you know, he'd give you the chart that he made up quickly, handwritten, scribbled. He'd call you on the phone. You'd then take his notes, look at the names of the horses. And just like doing a shot sheet on sports center, I had to glance at the notes, glance at the names, you know, glance at, I didn't have a monitor. Did you have a Dave Johnson and down the stretch they come? No, I probably was imitating all the good announcers, he he being one of them, but I don't think I ever stole that one. I definitely stole and down the stretch they come on Sports Center, just being stupid, not trying to rip him off. You know, I did it for the Palio, in fact. It is a beautiful sport though. I I actually bought, have you gone? I had a couple of horses with Rick Patino, as you know, a great racing fan. And it was like for Rick Patino to lose $50,000 was nothing, but you know, that was my godchild's college tuition. And I finally, I called Rick and I said, Rick, I could have had the same experience driving down the Jersey Turnpike, throwing my money out the window. Advise anybody who wants to get into the game in the way you're talking about ownership, do it in the smallest way possible that it's not going to, you're going to be like, oh, whatever, we could have gone on vacation without her lesser than a vacation. I've done it a couple few times. Not a huge amount of money at all. And it was sad. The, the horse I loved the most, I was with some friends out in California, a little group called uh, Little Red Feather, Billy Koch, Gary Fenton, free shout out. Um, and th they they do it. Th that's their job. They they put together syndicates where, hey, you want, here's this new horse. Who wants in? And some people put $1,000 and some people put $10,000. And they all, they all own varying percentages, right? So I own a very tiny, tiny part. This horse was going to be really good. And she had a surgery for some bone chips and coming out of anesthetics, she got lost her balance and hurt herself even worse than they had to put her down. It was so sad because they, people don't yeah, get why, is. well, why can't they just put them in a cast? Why can't they, you know, 
but horses need to be upright for their digestive system. And, and it, remember with Barbaro, how they tried everything. They put them in a sling and, you know, they, they kind of went the extra mile. But also it's that, that, as you know, the blood supply is so low around the ankle area that um, maybe that was, maybe you were meant to be a maybe. great racer. I mean, it is insane when you consider they weigh a thousand or 1200 pounds or whatever, these skinny little legs, skinnier than a human leg down at the bottom. And then huge upper, you know, their butt and their hips, you know. And they're running, as you know, on one hoof at a time. It's one, two, three, four. It's never two, two. I think it's crazy how the jockeys get, people are so dismissive, like, oh, whatever, stick anybody on their back. Like, to, have, have you ever gone on a horseback trail with the family on vacation? You're going like one mile per hour and you were like scared out of your Like, oh my God, this horse feels so powerful. They're going 35 miles an hour, whatever, you know, cutting through little tight holes on the rail. Remember Calvin Burrell? They call him Bo Rail. Yes, Bo Rail. When he won the 2007 Kentucky Derby on the rail with Street Sense, who became a, a very good stallion as well, um, the Queen of England was at that race in 2007. So I got like Secret Service was there and the British security, and and I got a picture with her, but not really. Like I. I stood in a position that made it seem like we were closer than we were, right? And they kept, they knew what I was up to. They're like, fine, move forward, move forward. You photobombed the Queen of England? Yes, and it gets worse. So then I go to ESPN bosses. I said, I got an idea. The Queen just came to America. What if I go to England in exchange? And this was back when <laughs> things were more free spending. They said, that's funny, let's go do it. So I went to England. And shook hands with people, pretended like I was American royalty, essentially, to Royal Ascot, the whole thing. I mean, it was, talk about fun. Hey, let's go do something stupid. Let's get on a plane to London and go do that. Yeah, let's go to Royal Ascot, go to Moss Bros and get my uh, top hat. The one I've always, oh, I did. I wore the whole thing. I wore the top hat and the tails, the whole thing. The one I've always wanted to go to is the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Which... Uh, John Galbraith, wasn't he the only person who won the Derby and the Arc de Triomphe? Oh, that's awesome. I believe he was. The great John Galbraith. I had to go because we both work for Vin Storia, you know, who's horse racing degenerate, plus from Ohio. I just played golf with Vince Doria and his wife. Yeah, She's a maniac. She plays like 36 holes a day now. I didn't know her. I mean, obviously I knew Vince in a, in a deep way, but Vince is the first guy who hired me. He used to be at the Boston Globe, for those who don't know. And then he comes to ESPN and the book on me, which was true and, and remains true was he's not horrible on TV, not horrible at writing, but he, he's not a sports nerd. He doesn't day to day care about the Cubs middle relief. Just don't care. Sorry. I don't know. And so that's why I kept getting delayed about being hired because they'd bring me back and it was pretty clear, you know, knows how to pull off a show, but man, what, what happens if, you know, the twins call up, you know, this ninth reliever and he doesn't know how to say his name or whatever. And that was a persistent problem for 27 years and a month. But um, so when I went for the final time, I, this is like third time around trying to get hired by ESPN. It took four years. I'm out in Seattle selling long distance for MCI while freelancing, trying to get a job at ESPN. I'm trying to get garbage can assembler off my resume, which I had done two jobs before. And I also sold prepaid legal insurance. But the whole time I'm trying to get hired by ESPN. And I keep sending them letters and I'm, you know, doing freelance work, go interview Ken Griffey. Like they used me, but they weren't hiring me. Right. And finally I go back for this interview. I first, 
uh, interviewed with Vince, never met him. Good guy. You know, it's very warm. And I, and I just knew like in sales, sometimes you have to defeat the negative instead of letting the negative be the theme, just attack it. Right. So I said, Vince, I still don't know who the fifth pitcher on the Cubs is, but if you tell me to do a story on the son of a bitch, it'll be a good story. And he looked at me like, that's a pretty good answer. And I got hired. Vince, Vince, um, maybe he trained on me to hire you because, of course, he was my boss at the Globe for 10 years. And Vince would make me do the George Plimpton things. Like one time he made me go hang gliding when it was a brand new thing. And of course, I almost broke my collarbone, you know, so that was a disaster. Then he made me do. Have you ever even heard of orienteering? Yes, I covered orienteering. That was the first story I ever did for ESPN. Uh, well, see, Vince, that's where I'm telling you, Vince made me do it. For people who don't know, you go into the woods for three days with like a compass and a spoon, and you're supposed to find your way out of there. So, of course, after three days, the police had to come find me <laughs> like I could. So, I mean, mine was a one day event. It's basically like a treasure hunt slash cross country run. It is. And there's clues. There are clues in the woods that tell you where to go next, where to go next, where to go. Next. So I was at my little station in Seattle. This is about 1987, 88, somewhere there. Before I'd even approached ESPN, they called, not looking for me. They were looking for anybody because there was an orienteering event happening in Tacoma, Washington. And we were the closest station to that orienteering event. Who's available? It was me. So I go do, I would hate to look at it now. It probably wasn't very good. You know, my high voice, like orienteering, you know, like all nervous, but I'm going to be on ESPN. It, it was ESPN's Scholastic Sports America with Chris Fowler, your host. Well, I'll tell you, I wrote the heck out of orienteering. I wrote, uh, he made me go skateboarding once when it was brand Ooh. new. Uh, and the, you know, there were the four, they weren't even really wheels. They were like leftover Joni Jet on the jam, you know, from <laughs> roller derby. But uh, yeah, young reporters, they, they have no idea what they're missing because don't you think it made men out of us? Absolutely. Well, I got to do a lot of that at ESPN with these different experiences we were talking about earlier. Like I slid down a volcano in Nicaragua. So you had, you had to climb. And I, this is back when I was using my old, old brace, which, you know, I could do it, but it was clunky. I mean, it was a long climb in the hot sun. And now you're looking down, you're, you're sliding over volcanic ash, right? And there's a little warning. The volcano could go off at any time. This bell will ring is what it says. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Get the out bell of the will pool. ring notifying our death here on the mountain. So, so the funny part about that was if I had it to do again, I would have gone faster because it really was fun. But I was scared I was going to go too fast and kind of put my feet out to the side to as, act as brakes. Then when I was done, I was like, oh, my God, that was incredible. I don't, I, you know, but I didn't really want to climb. 7,000 foot mountain a second time. So I just did it once. We also did one in New Mexico near Albuquerque um, called the Alfago Baco shootout. I, I'm not saying it right. Something shootout in New Mexico. So every year, about 20 ridiculous people like me drive to 8,000 feet and then you hike the last thousand feet to get to the top of this mountain. And then you play one hole of golf down the mountain. So you have to have spotters, right? Because you'd lose the ball and the cactus and the rattlesnakes and everything else. And my opening drive probably went 800 yards. Like I hit the ball a good two something, 250, like a regular drive. But because I'm off the top of a mountain, 
it never hit the ground. It just kept going. <laughs> and my spotters are out there with radios. Like, you know, it was yeah. very professional. And they give you 10 golf balls. And if you come back with all 10, you don't get any penalty. Every golf ball you lose, you lose a stroke or add a stroke. And I ended up in second to the guy that always wins. He beat me by like five or six. Oh, there's a known but, champion for this event? Oh, he wins every year. Yeah, look it up. Hey, <laughs> um, I will. I, I pulled out a cactus needle like four months later out of my knee. I didn't, I thought it was just like an ingrown hair. It was literally like a cactus needle that was stuck in my body all that time. You know what? See how funny you are. Uh, you know, I hope you have the rights to all these because they could play on TV land. I mean, honestly, you are a scream. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing, and you would like this, I think, in particular. My friend Jason Jobes, a uh, good guy, good cameraman, good golfer. Th this is back in June, right after I'd left ESPN. I went out to Seattle just to get some air and see my family and whatnot. And he said, Hey, why don't we just go shoot something stupid? Next time you have a dumb idea, let's go do it. So we went to a miniature golf course and I did golf commentary about four year old children playing miniature golf and just kind of made a mockery of everything, right? Like through the clown's mouth? I, I might have used that. I might have, but they, they so rarely put the ball in the hole, I couldn't use that very much. Um, but ultimately, we released it on the internet, and it, it got like 3 million impressions. Like, people were like, this is stupid. We want more of this. So we did the same thing for the Olympics. I shot a bunch of kids doing tumbling exercises, and we put that out on my Twitter as well. So uh, one of them actually made us money. The other one didn't, but I, I helped support our cause, the runfreely.org. So I made it seem like brought to you by runfreely.org. So you can look on my Twitter. Thank you, Kenny. You are so much fun. Promise we can have breakfast, lunch, or dinner again. Uh, thanks for having me. It was great for me as well. And that was my conversation with Kenny Main. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound designed by Robert Moore, Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. And special thanks to Sirius XM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.